Cockney Dynamite is our topic today. Welcome, it's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard and to not be satisfied with just a little religion as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from many who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Hey, good to have you with us. We're beginning a new series today on Gladys Aylward. Are you familiar with this missionary, this small package of Cockney Dynamite? Well, we have part one and two today of this 10-part series. Also coming later, lead curator for the Museum of the Bible, Amy Van Dyke, talks about Elizabeth and her talents as a linguist and about creating a system for the written language of the Alka or Waldani people. Also, Elizabeth will be reading some letters from listeners later, so stay with us for that. Right now, though, part one of a small package of Cockney Dynamite. What exactly is that? Or maybe more accurately, who is that? You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot, and I want to tell you a story. I love stories. In 1960, I was at Prairie Bible Institute at their spring conference. I attended Prairie Bible Institute back in 1948 and 49, and so I had gone back for their spring conference. And the speaker for that conference was that incredible little lady named Gladys Aylward. I sat in the audience, which numbered several thousand, and studied the tiny figure on the platform. She wore Chinese dress, a slim, straight gown of some nondescript color with a mandarin collar. She was about four feet ten, I believe, and thin as a toothpick. Her hair was also thin and screwed into a tight little topknot. A box had to be placed at the podium for her to stand on, for otherwise she wouldn't have been visible to us. The sound system in those days was not the best, and I wondered how on earth this diminutive creature would manage to make herself heard. I need not have worried. Her voice was stentorian. She stood up, raised a bony forefinger, and bellowed, I should like to read just one verse. And Jehovah God spoke to Abram, and he said, Get out! And she proceeded to describe the faith of Abraham, demonstrated by his unconditional obedience in leaving his own country and setting out he knew not where. And one day in a little flat in London, Jehovah God spoke to a cockney parlour maid and he said, Get out! Where do you want me to go, Lord? And he said, To China. For two hours, she poured out the story of her going by train across Europe and Russia and Siberia and China with a single suitcase and a frying pan strapped to the outside. She had no education, no money, no mission board, no friends in China, or so I remember the story, 
We sat riveted. The hours seemed only a few minutes. And we were humbled to the very dust. One man commented later, They needn't open the doors to let us out. We can crawl underneath. Later, in a friend's home, Miss Aylward, no one could have imagined calling her Gladys, and I sat on the sofa and talked of missions, missionaries, and particularly of single missionaries. I had been widowed four years earlier, and she, of course, had never married. Not that she had never thought of marrying, however. She told me how she had worked happily for six or seven years in China, alone, when a missionary couple came to work nearby. She then began to ponder the privilege that was theirs, and to wonder if it might not be a lovely thing to be married. She talked to the Lord about it. She was a no-nonsense woman and very direct and straightforward, and she asked God to call a man from England, send him straight out to China, straight to where she was, and have him propose. I can't forget the next line. With a look of even deeper intensity, she shook her little bony finger in my face and said, Elizabeth, I believe God answers prayer. He called him. And here there was a very brief pause, then an intense whisper which carried more power than her loudest voice. He called him but he never came. The indelible mark Gladys Aylward left in my memory is that of a very small package of cockney dynamite, a woman who had made an irrevocable choice in that London flat to believe that God meant exactly what he said and to stake her whole life on it at any cost. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 says, To shame what is strong, God has chosen what the world counts weakness. He has chosen things low and contemptible, mere nothings, to overthrow the existing order. Gladys Aylward was irrefutable proof that divine weakness is stronger than man's strength. When I'm tempted to doubt God, I'm shamed by that memory. Some of you may have read the biography called The Small Woman, written by Alan Burgess, and some perhaps years ago saw the film called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. And of course you have to remember that films are films, and there's all sorts of stuff in almost any supposedly true story that has been added or subtracted. So don't put too much stock in that. I never did see the movie, but I have read the biography. Gladys Aylward was born in Edmonton, north of London. The family moved to Cheddington Road when she was very small, into a row of red brick houses with lace curtains, privet hedges, aspidistras in the window. I don't suppose there are very many people younger than I am who know what aspidistras were. I'm not sure I'd know what one looks like, but I know it was a, a house plant that was common in most Victorian houses. Gray pavements, greengrocers, milkmen, bakers, horse-drawn carts. Her father was a postman, clumping up the road in heavy boots. 
Mom put the tea kettle on when Father came home. When the Zeppelins came over to bomb London in the First World War, Gladys remembered how she'd first discovered the antidote to being frightened. She would bring all the children in the street into the front parlor and sit them down against the inside wall. Then she would sit at the tiny old foot-operated organ, pedal furiously, and scream out a hymn at a decibel scale calculated to reach almost as high as those ominous silver cocoons droning through the sky. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 to 8, we read, Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think in today's world, we have a hard time following real examples of godliness. It's far too easy for us to just look at the life of someone who seems to be a saint, and we say, oh, well, I'm not, I can't even aim at being a saint. I mean, I'm not even close. And so you just give up at the start. Is it not right for us to do just what it says here in Hebrews? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It breaks my heart when I have a chance to speak with young people, high school kids sometimes, grade school kids, college kids, I often ask them this question. Do you have any heroes? I draw a blank. They look at me, they look at each other, they shrug. The answer is no, they don't have any heroes. Well, is there anyone that you admire? Well, yes, usually a rock star or an athlete. They can come up with a name or two. And then my third question is there anybody you'd like to be like? I draw a blank again. When I was growing up, my heroes and heroines were missionaries. I longed to be like them, to remember them, to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His standards have not changed. Of course, I get labeled many times as being way out of date or much too serious or much too spiritual for today's world. But of course, I take my cues not from today's world or from the popular quotation of the day, but from the scriptures. And so I want to do everything that I can to encourage you to read Christian biographies. Go to your Christian bookstore, 
ask for Christian biographies. Perhaps your church has a lending library. Perhaps you've got a library in town that might even have some Christian biographies. You might be surprised. Read them. Study them. Imitate them. And God will bless you. Our series on Gladys Aylward, that was the first in a 10-part series, A Small Package of Cockney Dynamite. Later on, part two is called On a Train to China. First, though, we hear from the lead curator for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. She talks about Elizabeth as a talented linguist who helped develop a system for creating a written language. Here's Amy Van Dyke. She was a talented linguist, and I think that's something not everybody knows about her, perhaps. We know about her her speaking and her writing and her mission work, but she was also a linguist. She studied ancient languages in college. She went down to Ecuador and started learning Spanish, and she learned these various dialects down there when she was amongst the Quechua and others. And then she was an instrumental part in creating a written system for the Wadami language. She and Rachel Saints, and then later you have Rosie Young and you have Catherine Peake and others that have followed, gone down there and then followed in her footsteps. But she was one of the first to start looking at their language and writing it down and creating that. And we have her notebooks. We have her note cards with the grammar and you could see where she's working out that language. And if it hadn't been for her and those other women to go down there and figure out that language, we would not have a translation of the Bible today. So in 1992, the New Testament in the Wadani language was dedicated and it was published. It took that long from the time that Elizabeth and the others went down there till 1992 for that to happen. But she was an instrumental part in that, in the beginnings of that. And I think that's something that should really be highlighted about her work. And she was she was brilliant, she was smart, she was passionate, dedicated, and that was one aspect of her work that we really highlighted at the museum and in this story. Museum of the Bible curator, Amy Van Dyke. Coming up later, Elizabeth will be reading some letters from listeners. First, though, it's part two of the story of Gladys Aylward. What would it be like to take a trip into the unknown, perhaps on a train to China. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot continuing my story of Gladys Aylward this week. That last name is spelled A-Y-L-W-A-R-D. And she was the heroine of a movie called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, which probably didn't have a whole lot to do with the actual facts of her life. And then there was a book called The Small Woman, And I told yesterday how, back in 1960, I went to Prairie Bible Institute for a conference, and I met this lady. And I have never forgotten her. What an inspiration she was to me. I want to read some verses that I read yesterday, Hebrews 13, 5 to 8. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today 
and forever. And I hope that there are some listeners who are in a position to take some notes on the life of Gladys Aylward so that you can imitate her faith. And remember, although Gladys Aylward was born late in the 19th century, she has a testimony for you and me, and it's not by any means outdated. At the age of 26, she went to the Mission Center in London, hoping to go someday to China. When she had announced at home that she was going to be a missionary, she realized that she must buy herself a map. She said, I didn't know where China was. Well, I bet to get a map. And she got a map, and she spread it out on the dining room table, and her brother came along, and he said, Glad, where are you going? And I said, to China. She had been 26 years old, very small and slender, with a neat figure, dark brown eyes, an oval face, and dark hair parted in the middle and gathered at the back into an uncompromising bun. Perhaps the principal of the Mission Center in London discerned some of the inherent stubbornness and inner strength in the tightening of her lips. But he would also see the tension in her face, tension that would soon be replaced by disappointment. He had spread the reports in front of him and pursed his lips. You've been with us now for three months, I see, Miss Aylward, he said. Yes, sir. Theology now. I wasn't very good at theology, was I? She had said quietly. He had looked up under his eyebrows. No, you weren't. Not good at all. She remembered how she sat with her fingers tightly clenched in her lap. She hardly heard the voice which reiterated her list of failures. She knew she could never make him understand. She knew she lacked the persuasiveness to argue with him or the education to pass his examinations. She knew she hadn't the background. She knew she had no chance. But she knew also, with a single-minded, agonizing clearness, that she must go to China. Well, she got a job as a parlor maid, and she arrived with two pennies and one halfpenny, one halfpenny. Her mistress paid her bus fare from home, three shillings. In spirit, Gladys was halfway to China. She went to a booking agent, and she asked how much it would cost to book a passage to China. Ninety pounds by sea, then forty-seven pounds ten shillings by rail, the Trans-Siberian Railway through Europe, Russia, Tenzin. Impossible, they said. Russia and China are at war. I'll give you a week. What would she do when she got there? No money? No language? She said to herself, I must learn to talk to the people. And she read missionary books. Then she heard of a Mrs. Lawson, who was 73 years old and had come back to England from China to retire. But then she went back to China. Gladys needed a passport at once. I'm going to China, she said to all her friends.
On October the 18th, 1930, she stood on the platform of the Liverpool Street Station. She had exactly ninepence in coins and two traveler's checks sewed into an old corset with a Bible, a fountain pen, tickets, and passport. She kissed her mother and father and sister goodbye and settled herself into the corner seat of her third-class compartment. The whistle blew, the train hissed and puffed. She waved through the window until her family were out of sight, then sat back and spread out on the seat beside her the old fur coat which a friend had given her and which her mother had cut up and made into a rug. Her two suitcases were on the rack. One held her clothes, the other an odd assortment of cans of corned beef, fish, and baked beans, crackers, soda biscuits, and rye crisp, beef tea, powdered coffee, tea, and hard-boiled eggs. She also had a saucepan, a kettle, and an alcohol stove. The kettle and the saucepan were tied to the handle of the suitcase. She took a boat at Hull and disembarked at The Hague, tipped the porter who carried her bags the ninepence in coppers and secured a corner seat on a continental train. From Holland, the train rattled across Germany, Poland, and into the great steppes of Russia. She sat facing the engine, cocooned in her fur rug, and watched the continent slide past. In Russia, she was shocked by what she saw. The crowds of apathetic women waiting on the bare, cheerless stations. Women working in gangs, poverty and peasantry on a scale she had not known existed. The main station at Moscow was full of soldiers. They carried their bread ration under their arms, broke off a piece to munch when they felt hungry. To the young English girl, cooking herself an egg and having elevenses of beef tea, the rough-looking, bundled, bearded men were alien and a little horrible. She wrote, in letters which reached her mother, that she could not believe that Russia was happy. She suspected the people were downtrodden and wretched. The sight of small children working on the roads both saddened and sickened her. Once or twice a day, she walked through the train corridor for exercise, and occasionally, when the engine stopped to take on wood, all the passengers disembarked to stretch their legs and replenish their water supply. Ten days after she had left England, the train crossed into Siberia, and she was at once impressed by the grandeur of the scenery, the towering mountains, the great belts of dark pines, the endlessly stretching snow, the bright sunshine, and the immense loneliness. At one stop, a man who could speak a little English came into her compartment, and, through him, the other passengers now began to ask questions of her. A kindly man, he conveyed to Gladys that the conductor who had examined her tickets wished to tell her that no trains were running to Harbin, and that she would probably be held up at the Siberian-Manchurian border. If this were true, and she concentrated on trying hard not to believe it, then her chances were remote of proceeding onward through Harbin to Dairen, and so by steamer to Tianjin. Now the train filled up with troops and rumbled onward. A few hours later in the darkness, it halted again at a tiny station 
and the soldiers got out, lined up on the platform, and marched off up the track into the darkness. The train lights went out, and Gladys walked up the corridor and realized that she was the only person left aboard. Then came a noise, which, although she had never heard it before, she recognized immediately, the sound of gunfire. She poked her head out of the window and saw the distant flashes light the sky. Then she scrambled her belongings together, realizing a little shamefacedly that the elderly clerk at Muller's had been right after all. There was a war on. And now she remembered the way he had said reprovingly, But I did tell you, madam, that we do not like to deliver our customers dead. Laden down by bags and rugs, she wandered down the platform and in a small hut near the track found four men clustered around a stove. The engineer, the fireman, the station master, and the conductor who had tried to persuade her to get off the train at Chita. They made her a cup of strong coffee and with a running commentary translated by gymnastic gesticulations, repeated the fact that she had, indeed, reached the end of the line. Beyond was the battlefield. The railroad men pointed down the track the way they had come. Go back, they said. The track wound drearily through snow-covered pines. It burrowed through dark tunnels. It was hemmed in by high mountains. But to walk back to Cheetah, they said, was her only hope. And so she set off. We are going to leave her there, find out tomorrow what happened with Gladys Aylward. That was called A Train to China. Hey, before we go, let's hear some of the letters that Elizabeth received over the years. And who better to tell us about those than Elizabeth herself? I've been doing Gateway to Joy for more than 10 years. And it's overwhelming, quite honestly. It's just overwhelming to receive the letters, to have the privilege of reading them, and to know that there are people who are being helped by the programs. Of course, there are some people who are critical as well, and I need the criticisms. But would you mind listening to some kind remarks from listeners? Maybe your remark will be in this pile. My wife and I just moved to Salisbury, North Carolina, where after losing a job I had for 28 years, we didn't know what we would do. But as you say in each program, God has us in his hands. He had me get a job here in North Carolina that will give us more than we ever had before. This reminded me of the story of Jesus at Cana. The guests got the best wine at the end. What God has for all of us in the end will be even better than he has given to us now. There have often been times I've turned the sound off on you mid-sentence, bowed my head in shame, and gritted my teeth before reaching for the radio to let you finish telling me what the Lord wanted me to hear. Another one says, I'm learning to be quiet and listen to my husband. Now that's something, isn't it? I'm letting him do it his way. I let him lead. I watch what I say. I realize that words can be deadly. And Elizabeth, our home life is certainly happier. And I feel less stress these days. Someone else says, I followed your advice about getting up early. My son, a toddler, gets up when he hears me, so I have company in the morning. 
I put the kettle on for tea and take time to read God's Word and pray. I do the next thing. I have God's peace inside. I'm so glad to hear about that. And here's a poem that someone sent me. It's by John Oxenham, a famous English poet. Mid all the traffic of the ways, turmoils without, within, make in my heart a quiet place, and come and dwell therein, where thou shalt all my soul possess, and I may find myself. A little shelter from life's stress, a little place of mystic grace, of self and sin swept bare, where I may look upon thy face and talk with thee in prayer, poem by John Oxenham. My heart was tugged by the recent letter which read that a husband was finally learning to love his wife before she was diagnosed with cancer. So, so many things I want to say, says this person, and I do appreciate your telling me that you've learned something. It's always my hope that somebody who's listening to me will learn something. And so these letters here encourage me to know that, yes, some of you are learning. Are we ever too old to learn? I certainly hope not. Maybe as you listen to this podcast, you'd like to leave a review. We invite you to do that. Thanks for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you, you. We're out jogging wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. That's Elizabeth with an S, elizabethelliot.org. For more talks, devotionals, videos, and more. Well, until next time, may God remind you each and every day that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are those everlasting arms 